Let us pray. So, Father, we ask that the breath of God, your breath, would indeed breathe on us the Holy Spirit of God whom you sent from heaven. And as your spirit comes, may we be molded and shaped and conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to everyone watching via the live stream as well. And thank you to everyone who assisted with our brother Ron Davis's funeral yesterday. Um, it was a wonderful time of remembering our brother, celebrating his life and giving thanks to God. And uh, oh, so many of you, I don't want to start naming different areas because so many of you helped with um, set up, tear down and everything in between. So thank you so very much. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday, one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Uh, welcome to everyone, and thank you for those of you who were able for wearing red. Um, I didn't have to worry about it. So um, I am so appreciative of that. And we, even though we have baptisms today because it is Pentecost, which is one of the days on the church calendar that is customary for us to have baptisms, we still go with the color red on Pentecost. Um, also, you will notice the Paschal candle is out and lit. That is not because it is Pentecost Sunday. It's because we have baptisms today. The Paschal candle, which represents the resurrection life of Jesus, um, is all out all through the Easter season. It is also out for baptisms, and it is out for funerals, as it was yesterday for our brother Ron Davis's funeral. For Pentecost Sunday, in what we call the lectionary, which is the cycle of readings for Sundays, um, the readings are the same, regardless of whether it is lectionary year A, B, or C. There, it's a three-year cycle, and so... Um, but on Pentecost and a few other Sundays, the readings are the same. The only difference or the only option in terms of variation is you can have an Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter 11, or you can substitute Acts chapter 2 instead of an Old Testament reading. If you do that, then you use 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 13 for the New Testament reading. And that's probably far more than a lot of you ever want to know about how the lectionary works. But I have chosen today to have the Old Testament reading from Genesis 11, 1 through 9, used as our first reading. Um, and we're focusing today on both that text from Genesis 11 and Acts chapter 2, doing a little bit of a deep dive. So, so hang with me, dive with me, and we'll all come up for air at the end, okay? Our first point this morning is what I call a divine disruption. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9 is the account of the people of that day attempting to build the Tower of Babel. Most of us have some basic familiarity with this biblical event. It's the last of what we would call the last event of what we would call primeval biblical history recorded before God's call to Abram, before he became Abraham, and then the subsequent emergence of God's chosen Old Testament people. As we look at this account of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, I think we need to ask ourselves what the central issues are. And verse four, which I'll read in part a little bit later here, gives us insight in this regard. Building a tower that would reach the sky is certainly an audacious proposal. It is grandiose and a cause for boasting as if they are somehow accomplishing the ultimate in human achievement. I think it's probably very much akin to how great skyscrapers were viewed 100 to 120 years ago, or perhaps the way some people view space exploration 
in our day. Look at us. Isn't this marvelous? Look how great our achievements are. Look at our power. So what are the core issues here? Well, the tower and the attitude that people demonstrates an arrogant, humanistic self-centeredness. How's that for being direct? With human beings assigning to themselves prerogatives which are gods and gods alone. Even indirect disobedience to what God commanded. First, they want to make a name for themselves. Genesis 11, verse 4, the first part of that verse says, They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Can't get any more explicit than that. Not let us worship God. Rather than entrusting themselves to God, as Derek Kidner says in his commentary on this verse, he says they crowd together to preserve their identity and to control their fortunes. How many of you know it's folly to try to control your fortunes, especially when you're out of the will of God? There was an article in the Scientific American about 10 years ago talking about scientists trying to duplicate the wonder of the human brain. And the article demonstrates how difficult it is to try to copy God's creative power. And I would say not difficult, but impossible. A team of scientists from around the world are attempting to, this is in 2012, to build a digital version of the human brain. A supercomputer that they say will replicate the workings of the human brain. They call it the Human Brain Project. According to Dr. Henry Markram, the lead scientist on the project, the project aims to reverse engineer, that's in quotes, the workings of the brain, beginning with the brains of small mammals and then culminating with the human brain. Dr. Markram claims, we anticipate that the brain model we develop will have most, if not all, human cognitive capabilities. But fellow scientists in the same field have severely criticized the Human Brain Project. First, these scientists argue that we can't possibly replicate the connectivity of the 100 to 500 trillion synapses of an adult brain. Second, they note that the human brain isn't just a static body part. Instead, our brains are constantly changing and growing. Thus, according to one reporter, understanding the brain is one thing. Making one that can run a virtual human being is a different story altogether. Finally, even Dr. Markram himself concedes that the human brain is millions of times more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer that exists today. The human brain is also vastly more efficient. If completed, the energy required to run an artificial brain would equal the megawatts needed to run an entire small town in the middle of winter. Our incredibly complex human brain hums along with the equivalent of a mere 20 watts of energy or the energy needed for a small light bulb. I believe these scientists are venturing into a realm which is an area that is a prerogative of God's and God's alone. Second, as we look at Babel, by remaining close together, they are acting in direct disobedience to God. Genesis 1.28, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. 
And more immediately for the context of Babel in Genesis 9-1, we read, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God here in his divine wisdom confuses the people's language and disperses them through all the earth. Now, biblical scholars argue whether there was just one single language at that time or whether there were a number of languages but still a common shared language, a lingua franca that people all understood, kind of like English in, has become in much of our world today. Um, it really doesn't matter one way or the other, but just as a point of illustration, especially in light of um, Genesis chapter 10. And we might ask, why didn't God just destroy the tower? Well, the disruption of shared languages didn't disrupt, disrupt the building of that tower, but it also precluded repeat occurrences of similar efforts. And by confusing the languages, it accomplished God's purpose for them to be scattered and to begin to fill the earth. As Gordon Wenham says in his wonderful commentary on Genesis, the Tower of Babel was intended to be a monument to human effort. Instead, it became a reminder of divine judgment on human pride and folly. Similarly, the multiplicity of languages and man's dispersal across the globe points to the futility of man setting himself against his creator. So to close the loop in Genesis 11, we have a divine disruption. So many of you may be thinking, what does this have to do with the day of Pentecost? And that's a valid question to ask. I'm gonna answer it in a minute. Other than being the appointed lectionary in both Genesis 11 and Acts 2 in some way or another involving language, what's the connection? Well, I'd like to submit to you along with a whole host of biblical scholars that the events of Acts 2 represent a divine reversal. That's my second point this morning. A divine reversal of what happened at Babel. F.F. Bruce's commentary on Acts says it very plainly. The event, meaning the day of Pentecost, was nothing less than a reversal of the curse of Babel. The day of Pentecost opens a new chapter. So let's do a quick comparison and contrast of these two events separated by millennia. The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and Acts chapter 2. And as we begin, I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, I've leaned heavily on both Craig Keener, um, who has written what will be the standard commentary for the book of Acts probably for the next 50 to 75 years. It came out a few years ago. It's a beast. Um, it is four volumes. Each volume is almost 1,000 pages on the book of Acts. I, as I was preparing this sermon last week, I said to Tammy, I had a post-it note sticking out of the volume one, which Acts chapter two obviously is in volume one, but it was in about the last three quarters of an inch of volume one, I said to Tammy, everything before that is introductory material in the book of Acts and background. So like this much of the first commentary. Um, so I want to give credit where credit is due. And then with him and also to Dr. James Raley, who was my systematic theology professor in seminary, who also dealt with this topic in a class I did with him entitled the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The Tarot of Babel, and Acts chapter 2 are the two major language events in all of Scripture. Not the only ones, but they are the seminal language events in God's Word. In Genesis 11, follow with me here, God scatters the people because of their disobedience and for trying to put themselves in the place of God. At Pentecost, 
the disciples are prayerfully waiting together in obedience to the Lord's command. See the contrast and the comparison? Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 tells us, And while they were staying with them, staying with them, he ordered them, speaking of Jesus, to not depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they are there in obedience to Jesus before he ascended, that they were to not depart, to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then continuing in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we see affirmation of them obeying this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Continuing the comparison and the contrast. Instead of vainly attempting to ascend to heaven through human efforts, as they did at Babel, on the day of Pentecost, they were waiting for their ascended Lord to send the Holy Spirit down upon them. In Genesis 11, God descends to confound the sinful actions of people. At Pentecost, God descends as promised and blesses the disciples' obedience. In Genesis, God descended and scattered the languages or tongues to prevent unity. In Acts, the Holy Spirit descends and scatters divinely given tongues and languages to bring multicultural unity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. At Babel, God acts so that humans cannot understand each other. At Pentecost, God acts to give understanding. At Babel, there is human disunity. At Pentecost, there is spiritual unity. And then finally, at Babel, the intention is human-centered. At Pentecost, the intention is God-centered. The prophet Zephaniah foretold this divine reversal would come to pass in Zephaniah 3.9 where we read, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure, pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. The peoples gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost were both Jews and proselytes, Jewish con or converts, Gentile converts to the Jewish faith. And they were amazed to hear the disciples speaking the glorious works of God in all of their native languages. And it was clear to them that those who were speaking in their native languages that they were hearing were Galileans. Galileans were known by their accents. And while Galileans would have known Aramaic and probably some Greek, they wouldn't have known the rest of the languages. Galileans were not generally well-educated. As Craig Keener says, people naturally considered Galileans the antithesis of cosmopolitan. This prejudice made these Galileans' apparent universal linguistic proficiency appear all the more astounding. These Holy Spirit-filled disciples are declaring the wonderful works of God in essentially every language of the known world at that time. Miraculously, not languages that they had not learned to speak. It's also interesting as we look at the list of nations here in Acts chapter 2, which is not comprehensive of, or fully representative of everyone that was there, but the emphasis tends to be on the nation's name from the east or from the Mesopotamian region. And biblical scholars do not believe that that's consequential or, or coincidental 
because that is the area where the Tower of Babel account took place. And so emphasizing those nations brings specific focus to the reality of the connection here between Acts 2 as a, and Babel and Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost as a reversal. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, one of the Nicene fathers writing around 350 said, the multitude of hearers was confounded. It was a second confusion in the room of that first evil one at Babel. For in that confusion of tongues, there was division of purpose because their thought was at enmity with God. But here minds were restored and united because the object of interest was godly. The means of falling were the means of recovery. Wherefore they marveled saying, how hear we them speaking? So we have this miraculous divine reversal. But together and even with and beyond that, we have also what I would call a divine diaspora or scattering or spreading. A God-ordained and God-empowered sending forth of the gospel of salvation through the resurrected and ascended Jesus. Here again, the list, most likely again, a partial list of those who heard, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all of this, brothers and sisters, all of this is precisely by God's design all the way back to the verses we read previously in Genesis. But especially, especially with the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit beginning, not ending or not just a one-time thing, but beginning on the day of Pentecost. Acts 1.8, Jesus' words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what we saw is the spread of the gospel continuing through the book of Acts, not only to Jews and proselytes, but to Gentiles as well. And this work of God's, of God, God's plan and purpose continues to this day. This is our Lord's will and command to his, his people in every generation. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is part of our gospel reading next Sunday, we read the words of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Mark 16, 15, we read the words of Jesus, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That really brings us to a focus on missions because the purpose of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was indeed missionary. We see this throughout the book of Acts. The fullness of the Spirit is, is, is inseparably tethered to being missionary-minded and hearted. You cannot be, we cannot be, hear this, a spirit-filled people and not have a heart and a vision for missions, for spreading the gospel in our community, 
across our nation, but also, as the Lord said, to the ends of the earth. It's inseparable from the fullness of the Spirit. It's inseparable from Pentecosts. We must have a heart for taking the gospel to those in our community and to those in the farthest flung corners of the earth. By the way, saying corners, I don't believe in a flat world. Let's just be real clear here so nobody gets mistaken. I saw a sign up, up, off, uh, up towards Lorton a couple, this is not in my notes, a couple months ago. Somebody had a huge sign up, flashing billboard about, don't believe round earth lies. It's like, where does this come from? <laughs> Thought we settled this in the 15 or 1600s. <laughs> but then we have, we have a divine diaspora. We also have a divine mission with divine empowerment. Acts 2, 12 through 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They weren't filled with new wine like the people there thought they were, but they were filled with the presence and the power of God. And like those disciples on Pentecost, we need to be filled not with the wine of this world, not with the junk of this world, but with the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Wine that comes by being connected to the true vine. To quote St. Cyril of Jerusalem again, and this is a little bit of a heady quote. I may read it twice because it's in kind of um, a, a syntax that we don't use anymore. But I, this is so important. For in truth, the wine was new, even the grace of the New Testament. But this new wine was from a spiritual vine, which had oft times ere this born fruit in prophets and have budded in the New Testament. For as in things sensible, the vine ever remains the same, but bears new fruits in its seasons. So also the, so the self-same spirit, continuing what he is, as he had often wrought in the prophets, now manifested a new and marvelous work. For though his grace had come before to the fathers also, yet here it came exuberantly. For formerly men only partook of the Holy Ghost, but now they were baptized completely. They were baptized completely. I like that language. I like what St. Cyril says there as a doctor of the church. I think it raises the question for you and me, for us as a church. Are you, am I, are we baptized completely? We need to be, whether it be for the first time or it be time and time and time again. We need to be because we desperately need to be in order to accomplish what God has called us to do, the work he wills to accomplish in and through us. But we cannot do it on our own. As the late A.W. Tozer once noted, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would notice the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would have known the difference. We don't want to be like that modern 95%. We need to be filled. We need to be filled afresh. We as believers need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's the only way to accomplish God's work through God's designed means.
Otherwise, we risk or are very vulnerable to falling into the traps similar to those at Babel. We take things into our own hands. We try to do things in the flesh, in our own strength, which is folly. Hum through human wisdom and human ideas, which separated from God and God's guidance, we need to use our brains, don't, don't misread me, but separated from the wisdom of God and devoid of God's leading and God's power, those things are all folly. They're all fleeting. As we read a few weeks ago in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Did we hear that? Apart from me, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Apart from his sending of God, the Holy Spirit in power, we can never, ever, ever accomplish God's work by God's... We can never accomplish God's work. We need God's power, and God's work must be accomplished through God's means in the way that God has designed it. And that should also be incredibly freeing, because you know what? It's not about us and our strength and our determination and our digging our heels in and gritting our teeth and perseverance. No. It's about God filling us and equipping us and taking us so far beyond ourselves that God uses us in ways that are completely impossible in the natural and in the flesh. This fall, um, continuing in this vein, we're going to have Bishop Bill Murdoch in. Uh, bishop Bill um, is the retired, fairly recently retired bishop of the ACNA Diocese of New England. And... Um, He's coming in on, it's the second week of October. I'll be getting those dates up on the website very soon. Um, or I'll be asking someone to get those dates up on the website. I don't have a clue how to put dates up on the website. Um, but we'll be getting those up. And that will be, he will be with us on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Monday night, and a Tuesday night. This will be an all-church event to really focus on, in the life of our church and in our lives, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So it'll be a time of worship in the Lord's presence and prayer and teaching. And Bishop Bill's a wonderful, wonderful, godly man. This had been planned for March of 2020 and um, late March of 2020, but you all know what happened at the beginning of March 2020 um, with COVID and all of that. And so um, Bishop Bill and I have been in communication and um, very much felt led that this fall was the time to do that. So that'll be the second uh, week in October and much information to come on that, but we'll be making provisions for teaching of the children during that time, meals here at the church on Monday and Tuesday so that folks can come as families and from work without it being crazy hectic. So please keep that in mind. But back to this, God has called us to be a fully baptized people. God is calling us to be a fully baptized people. We need his power. We need to not be like the example of those at the building of the Tower of Babel. But we need to be like those on the day of Pentecost where we follow in obedience, expectant, willing, joyful obedience to what our Lord commands us to do, knowing that he will empower and he will equip us to do that work. Let us pray. So Father, thank you for Jesus, the vine. Thank you that as we stay connected to you, as we open ourselves to the empowerment of God, the Holy Spirit, 
that you equip us to do your work through your means, just like you did on the day of Pentecost, just like you did in the book of Acts, just like you have done and continue to do down through the generations. So Lord, open us afresh that we would truly be fully baptized, not resting on a past experience, but Lord, seeking to be filled with you afresh even now. Lord, fill us and equip us to do your good and gracious work. And Lord, may we be obedient in waiting in your presence. May we be obedient in walking in the power of your Spirit, remembering that apart from you, we can do nothing. And may we be obedient in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.